welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Katherine Drinkett. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Today we have Mauro Ferrari, who serves as President and CEO of Houston Methodist Research Institute. He is also Executive Vice President of Houston Methodist Hospital System and Director of the Houston Methodist Institute for Academic Medicine. Welcome. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. (laughs) Uh, Your talk today was entitled Nanomedicine and Beyond. Could you give our audience some background on what nanomedicine is? Of course, happy to do that. Well, nanomedicine is the application of nanotechnology to medicine, right? So nanotechnology, let's put it this way, is the art and science of uh, playing with Legos that are, uh, metaphorically speaking, playing with Lego building blocks that are the size size of a few atoms across. That's a, a nanometer, the defining dimension of nanotechnology is about the distance between an atom and its second nearest neighbor in the, in, the, in the crystal. So we are talking about very, very small things. Nanotech started emerging as a field maybe some 20 years ago. And uh, now if you look at what has happened in the past 20 years, nanotech has been a true revolution. If you look at the science, Mm, several Nobel Prizes were given in physics and chemistry for breakthrough discoveries that were the foundation of nanotechnology. If you look at the entire fields of human technology have been transformed, uh, for instance, electronics. Electronics is dominated by nanotechnology. Nothing that you and I would ever think of using anymore or carrying around in our pockets uh, could be made without nanotechnology. The reason why we have more computational power in our cell phone that NASA did when they landed the man on the moon is because now we can do things at the nanoscale. So nano has been very pervasive uh, throughout uh, the activity of society. And in medicine, the first nano drugs, uh, nanoparticle that carry drugs and try to make them concentrate at the target sites, such as in tumors to be, to be treated, the first nano drugs were approved about 20 years ago before the word nano was ever used. So they were, in a sense, precursor technologies. And right now, about 5 to 10% of all cancer drugs that are used in the clinic in the US today, volume wise, are nano, are nano in, in some way or other. Some of them are, again, particles that carry drugs. Some of them are conjugations of uh, drugs with certain targeting structures, and there are other variants on the team, but Nano has become a big player. Great. Thank you for that explanation. So you spoke today about seven to ten various challenges that need to be addressed in nanomedicine. Could you cover some of these challenges? Yes. Uh, that, that, uh, that was really an article, that the reference to the f- challenges in nanomedicine came from a collaboration that we did uh, with the FDA in the early days of nanomedicine. And by working together with the FDA, of course the FDA wanted to learn about uh, what are the, the, what is the science behind the nano drugs so that they can better regulate it. You need to understand the science to make sure that you come up with the right regulatory approval pathways for safety and for efficacy and for all these things. And at the FDA, of course, there is great expertise for say chemotherapeutic agents 
or molecularly targeted drugs, biomolecules, what we call biotechnological drugs. But for nano, a number of questions come up that people need to answer. So we got together with the FDA, yes, I think it was 2005 or say six, and we held a joint symposium, and the questions that we raised back then, I think, are still the questions that are crucial for nano. The field has been evolving, but those questions always remain uh, fundamental. And one of those is how do you make sure that, uh, that the particles that you, that you make and that you inject potentially in people, how do you make sure that you control where they end up? And this involves uh, recognition, but most importantly involves crossing the biological barriers that are built into our body, a safety precautions type of systems as our body is divided into compartments. That is the fundamental crucial question for safety, but also for efficacy. To get a cancer drug to, to concentrate preferentially in a cancer, you need to cross a number of different barriers until you get to the cancer. And the ability to cross those barriers is what determines the distribution of your drug, and that's what determines the efficacy and the safety of your drug. We just wrote uh, this very month, uh, the current issue on nature biotechnology, we actually just published uh, if you will, a design manual, how you make nanoparticles to make sure they concentrate in the right places. So as you can tell, the science evolves and there are hundreds of laboratories that are doing wonderful work in nanomedicine across the country and throughout the world, looking at uh, more and more refined solutions, so how you cross barriers, how you recognize cancers, how you make sure that you deploy your therapeutic action against the right cells and not the healthy ones. Yeah. How are you addressing some of these challenges in your, in your current research? Great. Uh, no, we um, we have uh, so the title of my talk today was beyond nanomedicine and beyond, and this is one of the beyonds. Mm -hmm. Our observation has been uh, that nanoparticle systems offer benefits in some cases, but in some, but they perhaps do not have enough uh, design flexibility to address in general the challenges that are most important in the clinic. Let me, by, by reference, uh, if you look at uh, mortality due to cancer, no matter where the cancer originates, the vast majority of mortality due to cancer is because of metastasis to lungs and to liver. Lungs and liver are the vast, uh, the, 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 the culprits, of course, of, of mortality, morbidity in cancer. And uh, so the question that we've been working on is how do you make sure that you develop a system that can deliver drugs preferentially against lung and liver metastasis, regardless of their origin. Primary tumors are easier to, to, to fight, to treat for, with a knife, for instance, or with radiation. Is the metastatic deposits that we don't know how to treat, and unfortunately, I don't mean we as in my lab, we don't in medicine, that's how people die. So, and nanoparticles by themselves offer some advantages, but not transformational advantages, at least the ones that we have seen and the ones that have been brought to the clinic so far. So we developed, uh, taking inspiration from the space exploration programs of NASA, we developed a system that we call multi-stage delivery system. If you remember when, uh, when they flew uh, the lunar exploration mission back 40 years ago now, the rocket that got uh, the astronauts to the moon was a multi-stage rocket. 
And the reason for that is that if you just took one of the three stages or two of the three stages rather than the full system, you could never get through the various pieces that form the journey. So getting to a cancer, to a lung metastasis or to a liver metastasis is a lot harder than getting people on the moon. And here we are thinking that you can do this with a single nanoparticle or with a single drug molecule or even with a biological agent. It is harder than that. So we have developed these systems of carriers um, that actually have multiple stages and where each of the stages navigates a part of the journey across a number of the barriers so that you can then finally deploy your therapeutic agent at the right place at the right time. It's complicated, but cancer ain't easy. So yeah. as Albert Einstein used to say, make your theory as simple as possible, but not any simpler, and cancer is a formidable enemy, mm -hmm. and the simple solutions, relatively simple, each of them very complicated, but the simpler solutions that we have tried so far have not cured anybody of lung and liver metastasis, and that's what our focus is. And, and I think that's a great transition to this next question. So can you cover some of the exciting projects that you're working on? During your talk today, you covered some drug delivery projects uh, for cancer, such as the nanochannel delivery implant, and showed a beautiful video of it. Um, we can't experience that video over this the audio channel, but um, maybe you could speak a little bit of that work and also um, bio um, nano scaffolds for regenerating bone. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm very excited about the way MSVs are working, these multi-stage vectors. And with those, uh, we have had some recent results that are very exciting. For instance, we have shown that you can use those to do vaccinations using DC dendritic cells. Loading them up with multi-stage vectors, we get really unprecedented results in the therapy of, uh, of certain breast cancer types that are otherwise impossible to treat. Of course, all of this has been done in, in, in preclinical models in animals, and now we are moving it hopefully quickly to, to, to human, to clinical trials. The, uh, the um, second system that I showed today is an implant, um, is an implant that was developed also with funding by, by NASA and, and other units in the federal government. And it was in view of the Mars exploration mission, actually, that uh, we developed the notion of implants that can release drugs for a long period of time at very small amounts of drug release per unit time so you don't trigger the threshold, you don't cross the threshold of adverse side effects, but you can have the, 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 the preventative or therapeutic effect that you require. We can actually make these implants, uh, and these implants are based on nano-channel technology. We can make these implants with controls so that you can actually increase or decrease the rate of release as needed. You can stop it, you can reverse it, you can do a number of different things. That those nanochannel technologies uh, are now, uh, we can formulate many different drugs and we are also transitioning those uh, into a number of different clinical settings. So, so in terms of um, FDA and regulating these, if you have a drug that's already approved but then you come up with a new delivery system. Yeah. How does that work? If the principal mode of action is the drug, it still gets regulated as a drug, but it will be under the purview of uh, the, 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 combina the combination products office of the FDA. So there is a component that has to do with the device, the dominant component has to do with the drug, but there is shared oversight for the things that are in common. Mm. So it's, uh, that, that's the way it works. 
the, the third project that we talked about is a regeneration project that was funded uh, by the Department of Defense uh, that now we actually are funding to take to the clinic where we are uh, using a, a combination of different technologies including nano delivery systems. We have actually developed a material that can be used uh, to uh, for the for the treatment of uh, uh, big uh, fractures for fractures that are so so devastating and so vast in extent uh, that they could never be healed with conventional means that you cannot fix uh, with plates and screws or with external fixators the fractures that are so big that unfortunately only give you the only option that they give you is amputation so we have shown in large animal models in sheep uh, that uh, these materials, we call these bio-nano scaffolds or BNS, uh, bio-nano scaffolds can be placed uh, where the large bone defect is and essentially uh, solidify within the body rapidly, become load-bearing, that is, give the ability, suppose the fracture is in the femur, in the long bone of the leg. So give the ability to the person that has suffered that fracture to mm. essentially get up and walk within days. Wow. And this we have shown in animals, not in people yet, so be careful. And then this material disintegrates, degrades over time, reabsorbs over time uh, without uh, adverse effects. And as it does that, it also stimulates the growth of the original bone. And we have shown this in animals that the original bone can regrow. And, and, and remodel and become essentially the equivalent of the original bone within a matter of a few weeks. Now, these we have validated in big animals. Um, uh, in the case of these devastating fractures, what I am thinking is that uh, if this makes it to the clinic, as I hope it will, it will really transform orthopedic surgery because there is, of course, the application for smaller type of injuries would be much easier and would essentially do away with the necessity for, for surgical intervention in the vast majority of cases. So I, I'm thinking that uh, we are at the major turning point uh, in, uh, in orthopedics, uh, and uh, if it is not our group with this particular embodiment that actually develops this, somebody else will. I think we are within reach. You know, it, and it is, is that always within a, the next five years? Yeah, it's, uh, we, that's what we have funding for, to take it by multi-million dollar funding, to take it through uh, uh, the final stages of preclinical experimentation and into clinical trials within five years. Wow, that's exciting. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. Wish me luck. We know from 2003 to 2006 you were an eminent scholar and special expert on nanotechnology at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. During this time, you established the NCI Alliance for Nanotechnology and Cancer. Could you cover this experience and why it is important? Oh, that was a fantastic experience. I would be forever indebted to the gentleman that invited me to hold those positions. Of course, the, the, the director of the National Cancer Institute uh, then was Dr. Randy von Eschenbach, who then became the commissioner of the FDA. And those were times of great innovation, perhaps of unprecedented innovation in the way people looked at fighting cancer. Um, brought a lot of new technologies. The nanos were one example. Nanotechnology was my job to develop that program 
But then there were new programs that were started in those years, uh, in the, for instance, in the field of biomarkers using proteomics, th truly transformational changes in the field of systems medicine, systems biology. So bringing mathematics, engineering, physics, uh, all sorts of different things that have never been used uh, to such an extent in the fight against cancer to come in and join forces with the cancer biologists, always at the service of the clinical endeavors, of course. So those were great times. The, I think of those uh, with, with great fondness. And it was a great experience. The, all these Nobel laureates that were participating in these efforts and they were advising on these transformational changes. They were great people. It was, if I'm thinking just of the Nobel laureates that were there at the time that we had the opportunity to, to, to meet and discuss things with and reporting to in many ways. It was, you know, James Watson was there and David Baltimore and Phil Sharp and Andy Bishop and uh, Lee Hartwell, magnificent uh, Lee Hartwell, and then, of course, Harold Varmus as well, that then became the head of the NCI. So those were very, very, very exciting times of true transformational uh, innovation. And my job was to put together the program uh, on uh, nanotechnology, and it was launched in 2005, and of course, uh, that was my assignment, but it could not have been done without the great contributions from many, many other people that corrected me, gave me great feedback, and gave me opportunities. So that was everything but a one-man show. Nevertheless, it was a great experience, and I was very thankful for the opportunity. So this launched in 2005. Uh, it is almost unheard of at the NCI that a special program continues um, for more than one or two terms. It is now in its third term, mm -hmm. so we'll have run 15 years by 2020, and has given rise to thousands of publications in the world's best journals, has funded thousands of investigators throughout the country, has given rise to at least 20, 30 new nanodrugs that are in clinical trials. Uh, it's been a truly transformational program, and it came because of the fact that people kind of, for once, set aside their differences uh, I'm a physicist, you are a biologist, I'm this, you are that, and started working together with a leadership that focused on patient benefit first, and that is why it was so transformative. Yeah. So during your talk today, one of the themes um, that you talked about was the need for a multidisciplinary approach um, in science. I was wondering if you could speak on how you've cultivated this type of approach at Houston Methodist Research Institute. Well, Houston Methodist has been just a fantastic opportunity. I've been there for six years, and almost six years, and we built a brand new research operation, and we essentially hired a 1,000 people, and we are continuing to hire from the best places. So 1,000 people over six yeah, years? Yeah, yeah, wow. And uh, we, we went from zero to 1,000 clinical trials, and so it's been a, a magnificent uh, growth period uh, spurred by the visionary leadership of Houston Methodist. Uh, Houston Methodist is, is, is a very visionary uh, organization and uh, with uh, always with patients at this focus. Of course, we are the number one hospital in the state of Texas, one of the top hospitals, maybe 20 hospitals in the United States. And uh, we live by our values, uh, and our values start with uh, no service to our, to our patients. And everything we do on the research side as well as on the clinical side, obviously, is always focused on patients. And we realized that the transformational changes 
that are necessary to take care of those diseases that nobody can take care of at this moment. Think of metastatic cancer, think of neurodegenerative diseases yeah. like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. For those, to really make a difference, we need to look at things from a different set of angles, integrating the great discoveries that have been made and the great science and clinical experience that's been developed yeah. in a more traditional way, if you will, expanding that and looking at uh, adding new different blood and forces to the fight. So for us, the word interdisciplinary is really a value. I think the likelihood of a breakthrough discovery happening that will take care of previously unresolved problems is much greater if you, are, if you are merging different disciplines and different fields. So now we, uh, I, we never, everything we do, be that in the cardiovascular, in cancer, in neuro, or in whatever it may be, everything we do is with interdisciplinary teams. Every project is, got, uh, is always at the service of the clinicians. It always contains cell and molecular biologists, but each of those projects has engineers and physicists and mathematicians and chemists, social scientists, uh, it's got a business type of folks, ethicists, everybody together working as a team. And that is a spirit that I find here at this center as well, and I, that, that is why I'm so excited to have the opportunity to be here and to post potentially develop some collaborations. We think along the very same lines, I think by, by and large, I have tremendous respect for Dr. Atala for what has been able to put together here. I look at him as a great inspiration, and that's exactly the way you do it. If you keep barking up the same trees, the likelihood of a transformational yeah. change happening is lower. You need to be, take big, bold steps, uh, manage them right, uh, recognize the failures as they come, and they will come, get rid of them uh, rapidly, <laughs> and move on, refuse to die, <laughs> fight another day and that's how big breakthrough discoveries are made yeah well i think you started to to touch on this um today you talked about the role scientists play in providing hope for patients yeah. how do you use this philosophy to invigorate your own scientific teams and then on the other hand how how does one balance hope with expectations of a patient all right yes well one thing that we do no, unfortunately, being the head of a research institute at a very prominent hospital, I get many, 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 many calls and contacts from people that are in desperate situations. Mm -hmm. If you call up the head of the research institute and you have cancer, it probably is not a good day, right? It means that nobody can provide you with something that can give you expectation for a cure. Mm -hmm. So you are grasping at whatever is available. And of course, it would be crazy to tell people like that, I can take care of it, I can do this, or promise <coughs> beyond what are the true expectations. That does not mean that you cannot give hope. People call me and say, look, you've cured all of these animals that had incurable diseases. Why don't you do the same for my daughter, for my husband, for grandpa, for myself? I'm dying, we're gonna be dying. And you tell him, look, no, we are going to be following the right regulatory approval pathways. We would never dream of diverging from that is going to take years and then they tell you, but I'll be dead. Or, but my daughter will be dead. Mm -hmm. And those are heartbreaking conversations to have. Yeah. But, uh, that is that, uh, but that needs to be done that way and rightfully has to be done that way. That does not mean that you cannot give people hope. The last thing you want to do is say, sorry, cannot help you, and then hang up the phone. So what we do? 
for everybody that calls me up. We answer all of the calls and all the letters. Personally, I do. I spend hours every day writing letters, calling people up. Or you try to learn more about their disease and see if there are other clinical trials that are currently going on. And sometimes we find clinical trials in fields other than nano, perhaps at other institutions. And perhaps we help them get in. Or perhaps we refer them to resources in other places. So the key notion is that uh, medicine, and medical research is part of medicine, is, of course, predicated upon technical competence, the science part. But the truth is that it is a spiritual profession. You are with people at the moment of the greatest frailty, and you have a responsibility to deal with them, and hope many times is not curing the disease. Hope many times means getting to a certain point in life, or helping the family deal with the tragedy that is happening around you, or many other things. It's a spiritual journey. It's an incredible privilege that we have in this line of operations to be with people in the moment where they hand over the prudence to you. It's the most incredible responsibility to have. The answer cannot be, it should never be solely technical. It's personal, it's spiritual, it's compassion. Those are the big values that make a difference. So to answer your question, how do we, in this very difficult environment of all of these situations where people are looking for a practical hope that you cannot provide. Uh, you have to learn the most important thing of it all, which is to deal with the human experience uh, in a way where solidarity is the fundamental value that you share. So my investigators, the basic scientists, people come from engineering, from, from all sorts of different places, uh, scientifically speaking, from math, from physics, from biology, and whatever else. Pretty much all of them, especially the young ones, uh, when we get some of these phone calls, I bring them in. I ask the patient for permission, and then I say, look, I have this young man, this young woman, they happen to be from uh, your hometown or from nearby, from your country. I, we get calls from all mm -hmm. sorts of places around the world, and I have investigators in my institute that come from all over the world, so sometimes finding somebody of similar nationality yeah. helps and say, look, come on in. and." Uh, that the young man or woman, you've been studying physics of these uh, sophisticated technologies. Let me show you what it means. Be with me and these patients. Spend the next few days talking to them. Find what, what clinical trials are available out there. Help them navigate the let, let them understand the disease. That is where investigators mm. also get to practice medicine in the spiritual sense, not only by doing technology in the lab or science yeah. in the lab, that's very important. The spiritual part is even more important. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much oh, for no, taking your time. You. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WFIRM News.